Welcome once again to the Fresh of My Fresh podcast, the freshest podcast in the world of podcasting. I'm your host, Curtis Metcalf, and if you don't know the music right there, it's wrestling background music. That means my illustrious special guest host, Beejus Philbin, is back with me. Yeah, boy. And you know the main subject we're gonna uh, talk about is professional wrestling, better known nowadays by WWE Sports Entertainment. And this is the part. This is the second part of what we was talking about on the wrestling episode, the pipe bomb. And uh, yeah, you could you cut the music now. You cut the music now. Yeah, yeah. The uh, WrestleMania 10 music. Uh, Want to send. Want to send a deep heartfelt condolence and sympathy to the uh, family of Scott Hall, who played Razor Ramon uh, hey, on yo. WWF. Had a luscious, but he had he had like a real rash riches story. You know, you followed him through his oh, whole career, beginnings. humble beginnings and stuff like. And what major, what could have been, and and when he finally hit a stride, and you know, got to the, you know, got got to the pay dirt. He answered that call from Vince and you know you know the story about Razor Ramon he pitched it to him and and you know Vince Vince didn't know he was doing Tony Montana from Scarface <laughs> and plus bonus shout out to uh Tito Santana who as the story go uh Scott Hall was brushing up his character and all he had was the razor name all he had was razor he said give me he was talking to tito in the bathroom like you know give me uh give me some names give me some names to start with R." and one of the names that tito said was ramon and he put it together it stuck history is made yeah yeah well he used to say to the kids he he uh he took his chains off Say you lose these, I lose you, or something like that. <laughs> but we're back with this uh professional wrestling episode because there's a need for these things to be done. First of all, amongst the podcasts we have heard that discuss wrestling in the international wrestling community, the internet wrestling community. Um, none want to delve back into the history before WWE. No, they did not. All of them are marks of world wrestling entertainment, and many share the opinion of a lot of people that I grew up with that said that was thinking like WWE was the best. I mean, they did have a bunch of wrestlers I like. True. And in some cases, it was the only ticket in town but it influenced a lot of people. Like, you know, at the same time, I know for me, at the same time that uh, WWE had Superstars of Wrestling on, that was uh, Fritz Von Erich stepped into it with the uh, with his World, World Class, Class Championship, Championship Wrestling. Wrestling. Yeah, that was the biggest one that was in that market that had, like, you know, substantial syndicated yeah. props. That was like North Texas and parts of Oklahoma, whatever they didn't share with the Universal Wrestling Federation. Right, 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 right. That syndication was a big thing back then. Just imagine, like, for those who was, like, just live on the Internet now, there was only, like, three channels. There was, like, only, like three or four channels. Then you had your uh, you had your VHS channels. Yeah. 
And then you had your UHF channels. We were mostly caught. If your if your local television station wasn't an affiliate of like maybe CBS or Fox right, or something like that, even for Mobile, then because even for Mobile, you had Wrestling Live on Channel Five that covered Gulf Coast Championship Wrestling until 1979 when it was taken over by Southeastern Championship Wrestling mm-hmm. that operated out of Knoxville, and it caught the Mississippi Gulf Coast, the whole state of Alabama. And then parts of Northwest Florida up until Tallahassee. Yeah, part of the Panhandle. Yeah, yeah, a good, a good substantial part of the Panhandle and stuff like that. You know, because then you know, you get to Tallahassee, you you you're going in on territory. You're going in on that uh, Eddie Graham. Yeah, that championship wrestling from Florida that went all the way from Tallahassee all the way down to Miami and the Keys. Right, right. So, um, I'm one of those children that grew up to be an adult and throughout a lot of those childhood years I was told by my dad that wrestling was fake you know <laughs> wrestling yeah. fake dad look at that stuff that stuff's fake they're not punching each other same here like I was just told it was just matter of fact I was just told the other day when I was talking to my dad about yeah about actual college wrestling that he was mentioning entertainment because he accidentally because I accidentally found out that he actually is a fan of Ring of Honor. Get out of here. And I was at, I was trying to talk to him about NCAA college wrestling, and <laughs> he just happened to make her ROH. But, yeah, he, uh, like, we were the generation that grew up learning about wrestling being called entertainment. Right, right, because it was put on in a certain part of the day i used to catch wrestling like saturday morning sunday mornings i know the first time you know superstars of wrestling and wwf that was uh that was sunday mornings yeah because like i had caught let's see like i remember wwf mania like early mornings like mid 90s on usa mm-hmm. and then you had superstars come on uh, wwjtc 44 Right in the middle of the day, like and like by the mid nineties, Michael P. S. Hayes was singing the uh, theme music as Doc Hendricks. That way, these are cool. Going to take a show, Michael's heartbreaker, break hard, show how. Oh, here comes the bad boy now. Ahmed Johnson muscles huge, hunter. His blood is blue. Yeah. So, so, so Michael P. S. Hayes, he parlayed that bad, bad street, bad USA. street USA. Yeah, yeah, uh huh. For folks who don't know, since we mentioned uh, Fritz Von Erich's World Class Championship Wrestling, one of the big feuds that, one of the biggest feuds of the 80s was between Fritz's sons, the Von Erichs, versus the uh, Fabulous Freebirds. Yeah, which are Michael Hayes, Terry Bam Bam Gordy, Buddy Jack Roberts, and then who wasn't an official member until 1987, gorgeous Jimmy Garvin. Right, right, right. I remember when Garvin became a Freebird when they, uh, was it when uh when uh did the UWF was bought out by Crockett? Yep, yeah, yeah, because they got grandfathered into Crockett in '87. Yes, they did. And yes, then, they did. And then they were turned in the faces, and then '88 they stayed around for a little bit, mm-hmm. and then ended up going back to world class, and that's where uh and that, that's where Arn Anderson told yeah told uh Michael and, and Jimmy. If you don't take a bath and brush, if you don't mm. fix dress a bit, take a bath and brush that nappy hair, they're gonna lock you up for vagrancy. 
Yes. Arn Anderson actually called somebody nappy. He called a white person nappy. Uh, yeah, the chair shots, the the uh, bleeding, the the whipping of the belt. Yeah, my dad told me all that. I like, oh, yeah. I don't know, Dad. Them chair shots, they get hit with the chair. They get pile drive into the. Uh, they took the mat up. They took the safety mat up. The safety mat didn't cover nothing. Ooh, <laughs> no, didn't at all. Then you had the concrete floor. Then you had the concrete floor. They were doing pile drivers. They were doing pile drivers. Yeah, they were pile driving you on the floor and stuff. And even though a lot of those moves are, are choreographed a certain way, so you know one wrestler doesn't hurt. It was a lot of mishaps. That did happen. I remember. I remember Little Feather in the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. I remember Little Feather. Mm. She was doing a routine sunset flip, and she dislocated her uh, elbow right there. It's right there in the episode and stuff. They highlighted it and everything, like on the next episode or something like that. Yeah. I tell you, the one angle that really made me believe that wrestling was real, it was the Monday Night Raw after Survivor Series '95, and. As and for those that might remember the mid 90s, all right, there was a storyline where Shawn Michaels had gotten jumped outside of a bar by what they said were nine thugs when in real life he actually got whooped by a Marine. <laughs> but for kayfabe's sake and to protect his name in, in the WWF, they said it was nine thugs and they said he was just jumped and stuff having his one on one. Ah, that was like that's one of many of the HBK mishaps right there. That they yeah, had that was cover definitely up. Turbo Street Phone. And that was, and they had to, and they had it was easy to cover up stuff back then because like there was no there was no TMZ, there was no internet or anything Ooh, to keep up with the these internet. folks, and and kayfabe was still being held up. You know, like yeah, so, you know, so even when it really did happen, it was still considered a myth because the WWF could cover it. Just like, just like the uh, the fight with the scissors, Arn Anderson and uh, Sid Vicious. Oh yeah, ninety three. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that was like in in Germany or something, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 Germany, yeah. yeah. It was in Germany and stuff. And like certain people, certain people was together, but the fight was between like Arn Anderson and yeah, Sid, Sid Vicious. Vicious yeah. yeah, with a pair with a pair of scissors. I think like did Arn have the scissors or something? I think C did. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, but that's kind of like a sight to know, like, you know, somebody as tall as Sid Vicious being, like, you know, having to have scissors for Arn Anderson, somebody that's significantly shorter than he is. Well, Sid did have half the brain that Kevin Nash did. Ah! Ah, botch man. I couldn't resist boy. that one. But, uh, yeah. But, yeah, like, with the storyline with Shawn Michaels, <laughs> like, what really just made me just feel like wrestling was just real was that that next night after survivor series 95 when he had already had bad you know, your bad head trauma supposedly yeah. yeah like he ended up going one-on-one in a match against owen hart and then next thing you know like owen hart you know, pulls off an enziguri kick on him and then Shawn michaels gets his momentum back you know, throws owen out of the ring and the next thing you know you see Sean yeah, yeah, putting his hand over his head, and then he just drops to his knees and then just drops on the canvas. I remember seeing that. And I remember seeing the footage, right? Being not that actual match. And it took me years to find out that it was actually a work. 
I really thought that that happened. <laughs> I was nine years old. I really thought that that happened. You thought that on the ends after the insecurity kid. Uh -huh, yeah, I even called. It gave him I a even, concussion. I even called the uh, the nine hundred number. I no, nah, I didn't call the nine hundred number, but like I even called the insecurity kick the collapse kick. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I really thought that was real. <laughs> like, like uh, Ox Baker's heart punch or something like right. that. Yeah. The next thing you know, you find them on the prices, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that also wrestling pro wrestling has some tales of and you know stories. You know, you no doubt have seen like on uh dark side of the ring that they so choose to cover it. You know, uh. What 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 is it I'm thinking about that they covered that was like similar to that? Probably it wasn't Eddie Guerrero. It was what was the what was the very first one? The Macho Man, Macho Man and uh Elizabeth, something like mm -hmm. that. Something that's like you know, well you know certain things get a, the plane ride from hell. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah the plane yeah, ride from hell. It it be some stuff that be been been and made. It'd be close to making the news, and then they still be able to cover stuff up until like a certain time, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. They feel like, you know, I felt like, I felt like that whole playing ride from hell, that, that retelling of that story was like serviceable. Like the statute of limitations ran out on certain things, so they can talk about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like Jim Ross was there, and this happened, and all the crazy stuff that happened with wrestlers on a plane and everything. Yeah, because the main one that they were talking about was Ric Flair. Yeah, was, they were talking like he was the ringleader, the, the, the highlight of the uh, of the show. People started roughhousing and getting real rough and like the almost flew through the uh, emergency hatch or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then it's like, you know, it's even rumored Either the rumor or was Vince there? Questions that need answers. Right, right. But back to back to the main thing that we started off talking about, you know, wrestling. Wrestling being fake and everything. Like, okay. Athletic theater. Athletic theater. Uh like from from my perspective, Wrestling had my attention. Wrestling had my full attention in the 80s. It was like, you know, the usual. Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, Dre the G. Yeah, Dre the G. Dre the G and everything, you know. Every wrestling man there. Uh, Steve Harvey, Nikolai Volkov. Uh, Bit John Studd. King Kong Bundy was also there, too. Yeah, Piper. Yeah, Roddy Roddy Piper. Uh, you had Bobby Heenan there. And they had just got significant significant upgrades and you know like you know certain folks certain folks had like got off the scene jimmy superfly snooker ravishing rick rude ravishing rick rude the got there, there. Minnesota. I right. Just came from there on Monday. right on right on i was i was waiting i was waiting for the uh tag on facebook the post on facebook for you to do it too oh yeah because yeah and then rude of course wasn't the only one from robinsdale either oh man first of all you got the you got the um you got to mention Eddie Sharkey, who's the trainer for most, not just Rick Rue, but also uh, uh, both the Road Warriors, uh, Nikita Koloff. Um, that's one more Rick Rue's I ever mentioned. Uh, is that another? 
No, wait, well, I think well, Kurt, Kurt Henn is from Minnesota. He's Minnesota's greatest athlete. Yeah. I don't know if he was trained. No, 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 uh, no. His dad, his trained. dad trained him. Yeah, Larry the Axe. Larry the Axe Hennick. Um, yeah, we almost deep dive into some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good shout out. Good, good look on that. Uh, that match. Yeah. That match of uh, the tag team match of uh, Kurt Hennick and uh, Scott Hall. I guess uh, Playboy Buddy Rose and Doug Summers. Doug, 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 Doug Playboy, Doug Summers. Summers. Who would eventually end up in a feud with the Midnight Rockers and lose the belts. And to lose them. the belts to them. And the AWA, AWA, AWA deserves every bit of the flack and the criticism we get for run, for the company being run the way that it was. Some Some worthy champions. Lost their belts unrighteously. Scott Hall and Kurt Hennett was two people that lost their belts. Like, I didn't, that reminded me of a dumb rule out of all the dumb rules in wrestling. Number, you know, the top two that, you know, uh, AWA holds one of the top two. Did you know that you could lose in the AWA, you could lose your championship belt on a count out? Oh my God. I've never heard. That's number one. That takes the cake for me. Number two was that's, that's that's that has not been a rule in any other federation. Nobody, ever. nobody, nobody else does that. Even in the lowest points of WWE, they've never done. WWE has never has they have they haven't done that. They haven't given somebody a the title just because you know they, they count it out. If anything, that would be an insurance ploy, a safeguard for the champion to like get himself disqualified. Right. You know, I mean, kind of the even... title doesn't change hands in the AWA. The title change hands if the 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 uh the champ is outside the ring when the referee counts ten and he hasn't made it back to the inside of the ring. I thought that was a dumb rule. Right. I mean, I mean, you don't even do that in a video game. Nah, nah. In no, the video game, game, in the video game, you gotta finish. You gotta finish the match. The wrestle, yeah. the, the 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 CPU is gonna send the character out at you. Um, what's the number two? WCW in the early stages of WCW, 80, 89, 90, The uh, well, that's well, a lot of that was actually a, a holdover rule of the NWA all together, not just Crockett, but the whole NWA. The uh, whole because NWA. My dad would tell me about. Even down here for Gulf Coast, that like if like if you were thrown over like if you threw somebody over the top rope, that was a DQ. Yeah, I know that rule was in place. Yeah, that rule was in place, and that rule was cool. That that was a cool rule. That right. that, that rule was right. What I'm talking about in WCW, you couldn't jump off. Oh, you talk about Bill Watts. Yeah. 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 Like you make up a you making up a rule here, but. You didn't have no rule like this in the UWF when you ran it. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Crockett didn't have that rule. Jim Hurd had the ding-dongs, but didn't have that rule. <laughs> and that's another one. That's another one. Like, okay, out of the most hated, you think Jim Hurd is more hated than Vince Russo or something? Without Jim Hurd being the trash that he was, you wouldn't have a Vince Russo. Ooh, we might have to come back to that. We let's come back to that. Let's come back to that. Cause Jim Hurd sludged so Vince Russo could sliver. Ooh, pizza, pizza, pizza uh, shop manager, Pizza Hut 
he managed he managed several pizza places. That's like he had no yeah. experience. Yeah, we got Jim. Yeah, we got a deep dive from '85 all the way to at least '91. Ding dongs and hunchbacks and you know, and I, dancing was, bears. Well, it was actually well, what happened was was that heard originally when he became WCW president after after billionaire Ted bought Crockett out in 1988 on November 188. Mm-hmm. There was a transition period up until like April of 89. And during that transition, Jim Hurd was the president of WCW, which was still at the time a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. And Hurd wanted to bring in some ideas that he thought would engage the kids, just like what the WWF had. But having a tag team named the Hunchbacks that could <laughs> legally not be pinned because the their shoulders could never hit the mat because they were Hunchback. <laughs> that was not a good idea and who and the people that were part of the booking committee that came about after George Scott was ousted as a booker when, when they shot down the, the Hunchbacks Heard penalized the world basically by bringing in two wrestlers that came in from from Deep South Wrestling in Chattanooga that used to be the Rock and Roll Rebels, Greg Evans and Richard Sartain from, believe it or not, yeah, Stevenson, Alabama, up Highway 72 outside of Chattanooga. All right. And he renamed those two the Ding Dongs. The Ding Dongs. And they came out with this. Circus theme music, looking like you're, you're looking like sideshow clowns. Yeah, I mean they weren't. They didn't have clown face paint or makeup or anything like that. They just looked like they were just some sideshow guys at a circus with some sideshow theme music that was just hokey, and it was so bad that Jim Ross actually buried them. <laughs> on the bike during an episode of NWA Worldwide. <laughs> good old Jim. Before he was good old Jim Ross, he he had integrity. He has integrity. Uh, yeah, the Ding Dongs came out on a whole bodysuit. I mean, I'm telling you, as a bodysuit, you know, like you know, like like old school Mr. Wrestling, the Super Destroyers, and, and, and stuff like that. And you could tell that was like you know tag team cruiserweight like that you know and that's yeah all the silly stuff all the silly stuff in wrestling always gets remembered and that's the theme song that's the interest music to the uh the ding dongs entering the ring somebody said it sounded like some uh some music called dragon ball z or something it does and when it's when it starts off <laughs> But yeah, the Ding Dogs was just like this horrible, horrible, horrible gimmick for these guys, man. But you know, Turner was paying them that money, so they was there for the duration. I mean, like they had fans <laughs> booing them. They actually got one night of a good pop on NWA main event because Lance Russell was also trying to put them over. Though Paul Heyman was uh, on the mic. Paul Heyman was another one that was like oh, super critical of these guys. Oh, Paul Heyman was a problem on the mic because 
Like this was an example of what they were talking, what of what they were doing when they were calling that match on main event. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paul Heyman was uh, asking, uh, yeah, Lance Russell. So the little one is Ding. Ding. And then Paul Heyman just blurts out on TBS saying, "Little Ding and Big Dong." <laughs> <laughs> Some of that stuff is too easy to like get away right. where it could have been, where where it could have went. But you know, you got standards and stuff like WC World Championship Wrestling is now owned by. At that point, it was owned by Turner, which would be which would in the next couple of years would be merged into Time Warner. And they had standards in place. You couldn't. They, there wasn't nobody believing. Couldn't you? Couldn't you? Couldn't believe it was like at least up until like a certain pay per view, you know, where there was no blading or anything. Due to the, due to the um, the roadies and the dusty roads yeah, incident. Right out of my mouth. Yeah. And then you had, and then Jim Cornette got jumped by Paul Heyman and the original Midnight Express on that first episode when the transition happened. Because Corny and the and his Midnight Express of, of beautiful Bobby Eaton, Laura's his soul, and, and Sweet, Sweet Stan Lane, they had just lost the world tag belts to the Road Warriors, right? When they had solidified their heel turn, and then on an episode of World Championship Wrestling, which most of y'all probably would know as WCW Saturday Night, uh huh. Well, Corny was on the was at the podium. And he received a phone call, and apparently, like people didn't know who it was. But then, when Loverboy Dennis Condry and Ravishing Randy Rose, who were the uh, Midnight original Midnight, the Express, original Midnight Express, came in ambush, Corny's Midnight Express. Then he also had Paul Heyman, known as Paul E. Dangerously at the time, yep, come out with a big cordless phone which they call a cell phone and just you know, oh yeah wipe corn, uh, corny over the head and corny cut corny got what they call color. color and then he bled so much that dusty rose was like just get a little color kid yeah i just i just told you i told you it was a little cut just a little color you know just a little color kid that's a lot of color gaming i mean that's how long and this was 1988 that's how yeah. long that Paul Heyman has been in in the game. Really, yeah. honestly, 86 and 87. Yeah, 86. I was about to say 86, 87. Honestly, and he was like, he was still like 19, 20 years old hosting parties at Studio 54 for, for wrestlers. So he got his foot in the door as a kid. Right on, right on. For those of y'all that are Paul Heyman fans and fans of Paul, of Paul Heyman guys, that's how long he has been in wrestling. Like, Y'all know that he managed the Usos. He also managed their their dad, which y'all knew was Rikishi, but he, he was he was just going by his last name Fatu and his cousin Samu, and they were the, the Samoan SWAT team, team in that time period too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And believe it or not, y'all know Rikishi for 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 having for doing stink faces and everything. Yep. He was much smaller in 1989. He was much smaller. I mean, he wasn't as small as Jimmy and Jay, but you still didn't want to see Rikishi off the top rope. That was their finisher. 
Oh yeah, sure was. Yeah, that 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 that. was a problem off the top rope. Really, he hit he hit a corkscrew, a corkscrew splash on you, and that would be that would be it. These boys was these guys was nimble. The uh the uh, that that mm-hmm. whole family, that whole family right there. You know, moving, I mean, something to be feared. Something you know that was they were some tough guys. When you see how high flying that the that the Usos were, just know that they were just the apples, not the whole tree. Not the whole tree some of the trees you would have to have watched and had available to you uh Polynesian Pacific wrestling yeah which was the rocks mothers which was the wait that was the yeah that was the rocks grandmother grandmother yeah yeah, yeah and Leah and high chief PMIV's promotion that went belly up in 88 yep Yep. And that was that's some missing real, pieces of the uh, NWA puzzle right there. Right, because along. that was the last West Coast NWA territory. Because by that time, by 1988, the AWA had taken up all the slack out in out in the Rocky Mountains and everything. They had, like like a lot of the title changes that the AWA had were out in Vegas at the time. I was about to say Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. They was hosting a lot of uh, stuff out in Las Vegas. And then you still had Portland, which was the outlier. And really the one main surviving territory that was the bridge of the NWA from the from the old NWA after WCW went independent in 1991. And, and right, then, yeah, yeah. Because WCW left NWA. Um, they left the NWA the same January 11th, yep. 1991. That's my birthday. Yep. January 11th, 1991, which is when Ric Flair beat Steam for the World Heavyweight Championship and inadvertently became the first WCW World Heavyweight Champion. Right. And, and that's probably like his like 10th or 11th title win. Yeah, we'll have, we have to make that count because, see, what WCW was doing in 91 mm-hmm. was that they had already established their brand and start promoting their brand over the NWA mm-hmm. yeah. by the middle of 90. So whereas you had NWA TV shows and NWA pay-per-views like in 89 where they were saying National Wrestling Alliance and World Championship Wrestling presents right. XYZ show like right. Starcade or The Bash. By ninety, they were just promoting WCW and the WCW logo, like they had phased out the NWA and all the marketing. Yeah, you had to be paying attention if you was on the outside and just got caught by the brand. If you was watching the wrestling shows, you could see like how they were still having uh, NWA belts, and then they started merging stuff. They started merging like the they had the tournament, they had the tag team tournament to merge the uh, the WCW. Yeah, well, that was 92 like, when uh, WCW came back to the NWA. Oh, wait, hold on. Wait, hold on. I thought, okay. Yeah, because, like, this is what happened. Because, like, another tidbit is that Sting, and, uh, Sting, when he had the big goal, was actually one of my one of my first action figures along with Lex Luger. Right. But they were, but they were listed as WCW wrestlers, but it was still the NWA world title. Yeah. So, yeah, that was, like, middle to end of 90 because I was, like, four years old when I, when I got those when I got those action figures. So, yeah, that was in that transition period. 
but by 91, when when Flair did beat Sting to you know, regain the world title, mm-hmm. then what WCW started doing with their PR is they started calling the big goal the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, but erroneously because like it still belonged to the like it was still the NWA World Title. But right. What they, but what they did do that was legal was that they renamed the tag titles into WCW tags because those were legit holdovers from Mid-Atlantic and Crockett. Right, right. So they right. could do that for the tag titles. They could do that for the world television title. And they could rename the U.S. title as the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship because it was a holdover from Mid-Atlantic and Crockett. Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. the NWA World Heavyweight Championship was supposed to represent all the territories, not just Crockett and WCW. Yes, and yes. Honestly, this is not uh, a, a part of... This was not the fault of WCW. This was from Crockett. Uh-huh. Or rest his soul. Yeah. Because in 85, after he merged his Mid-Atlantic with with both championship wrestling from Georgia and Georgia championship wrestling, well, at that time, renamed as WCW 1.0. Yeah, that he had to buy back from Vince McMahon. He had to buy back from Vince McMahon, yeah, yeah. After he merged those three, he kept the World Heavyweight Championship in the Carolinas with him. Yes. In the Carolinas and Atlanta with him. So if you were in Portland or if you were in Kansas City working for Central States, which he ended up buying, or St. Louis or Florida, you had to come to the Carolinas or Atlanta to get a challenge for the world title. That's right. So that was where the tradition of hoarding the belt for one territory began. And while it kind of, well, it, it kind of created two results because it kind of kept Portland from getting its press because mm. Flair and the rest of the champions would stop going to Portland. Yeah. But. It also kept Portland from being sucked into the whole Crockett thing. WCW. Yeah, because that, that would have been NWA another alive. that 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 would have been another territory that he would have bought. Right. Same. Yeah, same with. Yeah, same with the Mavias. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They just went out of business. Right. Before that could even happen. Yeah. Um. We got some. We got some runtime on here. We got. We got other things to talk about. You True. know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Believe me, Crockett and WCW are, are definitely subjects we could definitely keep discussing because that's a deep dive of its own. Yes. 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 So uh, we're gonna end this segment. Come back talking about women in wrestling. Yep. All right. Second segment. Now back to the show. <laughs> oh man, we gotta talk about these women in wrestling from from like Jacqueline to Awesome Kong to Mildred Burke and Bianca Belair and What? Your girl, your girl, uh there's uh that's Allison K and Marty I know Marty Bell, the Hex. That's like my favorites. Ooh, they were my God. favorites right there. And then there's also old standbys like uh Malena, 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who else? You got China, rest, rest in peace, China. You got Sensational all. Sensational Sherry. Yo, Birmingham's, Birmingham's finest. Like, you know, uh, Sensational yeah, Sherry. I watched her. I'm going to tell you how keen I was on Sensational Sherry. Before she was a Sensational Sherry, she was a world champion women's wrestler in the American wrestling association and how i found out i was heavy on cable my mom got cable television in like 1983 oh yeah so i was privy to just like really channel surfing and stuff before i even knew what it was and stuff and i found stuff like espn when ESPN was the total sports network and stuff. It was just one channel, one ESPN. Dedicated sports. Yes, yes. And they used to have the crawl that come up. Well, the crawl before they had the crawl, I think it was either them or CNN. I think CNN had it first. But they had this crawl that would come up like every 20 minutes. And like the uh, the, the bottom of the hour and the top of the hour. Like 20 minutes after the hour and 20 minutes before the hour was up. And they used to have this tone like, and then the screen, the uh, actual screen you was watching, whatever you was watching on, it would get smaller so they can, you know, run all the scores from all the major sports. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They, They would do that. So they would run the scores. You would see. You would see NFL scores, Major League Baseball scores, basketball. If that was in season, and hockey. So. That kind of intrigued me to the hockey and stuff. But yeah, most yeah, afternoons, whole new world. most afternoons, if there wasn't like NHRA drag racing and um, and uh, tractor pulls, that would be uh, AWA championship wrestling and stuff. And I got to see the actual wrestling amongst those being wrestled was like uh, the whole. I want to say the whole Larry Zbysko, Bruno San Martino thing. I no, seen... wait, that was WWE. Well, hold on. Yeah, because, like, yeah, because, yeah, that was, like, 1980. You talking about Zbysko and, and Bruno, the whole yeah. Bruno thing yeah, right there? Yeah, like, the whole field? I thought that happened in yeah, Vince covered that. Like, like, Vince was in the studio when that happened. And I see that's... I thought I was throwing a dart. Like, nah, you know, Lincoln and AWA. Well, okay. I used to watch AWA wrestling. I caught yeah. AWA wrestling on ESPN a lot. Yeah, and I got to see that part. Like, almost up to, like, Super Clash 3 and Jerry the King Lawler. Matter of fact, that was the first place I seen Jerry the King Lawler. Right. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. But then you yeah, had like, yeah, AWA had, had women. Memphis. But, uh, yeah. But then the AWA had women. They had uh, Sensation. Divine. They had Candy Divine. Yeah, Medusa Michelli. Yeah. Alundra Blazer, the WWF. Yes. Yes. Seen all of them. Matter of fact, I seen all of them in the AWA first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. See and, and actually, see, and actually, Sherry actually tried starting in Memphis at first because Cornette. Man, managed her like in, like at the end of '82 when he st- first start out. Yeah, yeah. Corny was only like 21. Yeah, yeah. He was a young guy when he was like in the Mid South Coliseum taking pictures alongside yeah, officials and stuff and submitting pictures to the uh, to the program. Right. Yeah. 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 And so was hot stuff Eddie Gilbert because they were the same age. They were the same age. How about that? 
Yep. Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert, head of uh, Hot Stuff International. He had, yep. he had he had one of the nice he had a nice heel stable when right. when he was running it. He he with, with who did he run in with? Like a uh, Terry Taylor, no, Missy Hyatt. No, 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 Terry wasn't part of it. Terry was a part. Uh-uh. No, he was a babyface throughout. Well, not all the no, way throughout. No, he, he was in the not, midst of turning heel by by eighty seven. But he wasn't in the stable with Mm-mm. Eddie no. Gilbert. Who was okay? Now see what happened was that Hyatt International had had Hollywood Hi, Hollywood had, Jack Tatum. Yeah, John Tatum from uh, Pensacola. Oh, local talent. Yep. And then I didn't know that. What happened was that. They were dating, and then next thing you know, Missy gets with Hot Stuff A. Gilbert, and who then, was managing the Blade Runners. Yeah, uh, Rock and Sting. Yep, and, St- and Rock ended up going to Dallas to become the Dingo Warrior. Right. And later become the Ultimate Warrior. He was managed by Gary Hart. Yep. Yeah. Honorary Light Skin. Honorary lights get like okay. I always wondered that was you know was Gary Hart a black guy because he looked uh, like he, he was actually Irish. He was Irish. <laughs> yep. He was Irish. But he looked like a light skin. He walked like a light skin. Yeah. He, he talked has, like a light skin. He has soul. He has soul to him. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Ricky Flair, let's get one thing straight. <laughs> <laughs> Dingo Warrior becomes Ultimate Warrior. In the WWF. Yeah. What was when is this? Eighty seven. Yeah, it was like the middle of eighty seven. Middle of eighty seven. But what happened was, was that the Dingo Warrior had the Ultimate Warrior character back then. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, he had the face paint everything except for the Dingo Warrior was from Queens. And that was before he moved to Parts Unknown. Right. Yeah, because it, because when he got to the WWF, he was in Parts Unknown. Parts Unknown and Vacant are like staples, staples, staples. Well, let's get back to talking about... Yeah, uh, right, I agree, yeah. Let's get back to talking about uh, Sherry Martell, though. So, yeah. So, Sherry had tried her hand wrestling under Jim Cornette, but as part of a recurring storyline, she lost and she ended up firing Corny. Yeah. Because everybody was firing Corny <laughs> in Memphis. <laughs> but she had received training under the fabulous Moolah. Uh-huh. And because she had such a wild lifestyle, supposedly, that, that Moolah wasn't going to have it and kicked her out of the school. So she kept having to get training elsewhere. In other words, in other words, Sherry couldn't be controlled or she belonged to the streets. <laughs> but by the mid eighties, yeah, Sherry got it together, came along as a wrestler, and started feuding with Candy Divine and Medusa Michelli. And nineteen eighty six was the AWA women's champion. And then also managing Playboy Buddy Rose and Doug Summers, who were the AWA World Tag Team Champions. Yes, you seen. Yes, I seen her in that. Uh, in the match you sent me the couple of days ago. Right, and then she also was managing against the Midnight Rockers, who at the time were Marjorie and her future protege. Yeah, 
Sean. The heartbreak break kid. Sean Michael. Before he was the heartbreak kid. That's crazy how we are uh, lining these up. Right, right here, you know what I'm saying? Like, she that was wasn't a girl. the first encounter that they had. The, the, the WWF wasn't the first encounter that they had. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, a lot of people think, you know, first time seeing certain wrestlers, they started in the WWF. Right, and there are, and there is footage on YouTube. Oh, there's plenty of footage on YouTube. Matter of fact, WWE owns all of the uh, AWA intellectual video. property now. Yeah. Like, like, they did that after the fact. They didn't. It wasn't a direct takeover, like... AWA folded in 91 and then after the fact WWE picked up their intellectual property. Yeah, the uh the assets. Yep. The assets, intellectual property, logos, video footage, what have you. Yeah, I remember um I remember a lot of that being on in the early 2000s too, you know. Like, right. you know, you know uh WWE has the website and stuff you can watch certain footage or certain things. Right, see, and then, but by eight, then by eighty-seven, then Sherry goes into the WWF and wins the women's championship there. Uh huh. And then loses it to Rock and Robin. He loses it to Rock and Robin. And then, by then, by eighty-eight, going into eighty-nine, that's when Vince started phasing out his women's division. Ah, uh, uh, uh. he had a lot of great wrestlers that were women. He had Lalani Kai and Judy Martin, who was one of the pioneers of the power bomb. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they any beat. particular match where you know you can you know where you got that where you got that from like oh yeah they had great feuds against the jumping bomb angels from Japan yeah yeah that was another lost tag team but yeah rarely I know rarely mentioned tag team too yeah but like you had Velvet McIntyre mm-hmm. you had Wendy Richter Wendy Richter who is most famous for being alone. With the uh, WrestleMania, was it WrestleMania yeah, two? Not the original one. The first WrestleMania. Yeah, with Cindy Lauper. With Cindy Lauper walking over with Cindy Lauper. Yeah, yes, yeah. Captain Lou Albano was in that video right. at the time. He was under WWF, and um, yeah, she came out to see, uh, she came out with Cindy Lauper, and she wrestled the Fabulous Moolah at WrestleMania, and beat her for the WWF Women's Championship belt. And then, see, this is one thing that goes against the legacy of Moolah. Moolah. Come to, come to find out that later on in 1985, that Moolah wanted to get her belt back. So, instead of wrestling as the fabulous Moolah, she dressed up in a spider suit yeah. that was usually that of a male wrestler. Mm-hmm. And she wrestled as a spider lady, but because the suit was so small, was so big on her, the fans already kind of caught on and started chanting, Moolah, Moolah. Yeah, well, and, some people, you could tell by how they move in the ring. And then what happened was that Moolah actually got into a pinning combination and 
the referee counted three counted the three straight out even after Wendy Richter kicked out. Uh-huh. So they just handed Moolah back the belt because Moolah for yeah. decades ran women's wrestling with an iron fist. Because in the fifties if she and if she actually ran a ran a wrestling school and trained with another male wrestler mm-hmm. and they pretty much exploited they pretty much exploited the yeah, the ladies that were training under her. Now, a lot of it is still under speculation as to the extent of how badly the ladies were exploited, but what has been said that has been more considered fact is that she paid no, no, that she had them pay steep rent to where they could barely make any money off of you know, off of wrestling events. Yeah, their their earnings were really, really stippy. Meager. Yeah, real meager. And then, like, if they didn't get along with her, she would pretty much have them blackballed and underbooked to where they weren't really getting as much ring time. Yeah, yeah, because she was in with certain people that was close to the bookers. Right, like especially the especially Big Vince McMahon. Especially Big Vince. Yeah, like she was so in with the McMahon family that she took the NWA Women's Championship that she had been the World Women's yes the Women's World Championship that, that she had been holding for up to twenty eight years at the time because there were there were there were like, she wasn't defending the belt. Well, wasn't that she wasn't defending the belt or not? Think about it. She was. She had such a tight knit rope on the on the belt because most of the women in wrestling were her trainees that they were booked to lose. So she pretty much rigged her way into retaining the championship all those years, and then. Once Vincent Kennedy McMahon, the, the Vince that we all know, took over the WWF, she sold the belt to him, and it became the WWF Women's Championship. Wow, man! But you could do that. You could sell. You could sell a championship belt. Apparently, so. Like I guess the NWA board of directors just stopped keeping up with it after well, that's, a while. Well, that's a sad, that's a sad thing to hear, you know, because, you know, NWA, they hold certain belts up in the steam. There was the World Heavyweight Championship and the, and the Junior, and the World Junior Heavyweight Championship, and then you had the the World, the Women's World Championship. Like, you know, right, how do which you... Is now, cause, which is now called the Burke, named after Mildred Burke. Right, yeah. Now, Mildred Burke had an interesting story, which leads to the story of Lillian Ellison, a.k.a. the Fabulous Moolah. Because Mildred Burke started out because she was dating somebody that would take her to, to wrestling matches. And 
she would be so inspired by watching wrestling matches that she wanted to become a, a wrestler. But when she did, her soon-to-be husband, Billy Wolf, kept trying to reject her and deny her and tell her to go away until she was convincing him to get you had to get her in a ring with one of Billy Wolf's stooge wrestlers and try her hand against a man. Because since there were really little to no women wrestlers, they all had to train against men. Matter of fact, Jack Wollin, the famous Jack Wollin, yes, was a member of Skandar Akbar's school of wrestling, and she was the only woman in her wrestling school. Let alone the only black woman. Right. Not just the only woman, but the only black woman, too. That's a very key point. All right. But Mildred Burke, whose government name was Mildred Bliss, no kin to Alexa, like she, like she was, like she was supposed to uh, be body slammed, and yes, yes, so, yes, so she would be knocked out. But she kept rolling with the body slam, and then she body slammed the wrestler that she was going up against. So that took Billy Wolf back. And once they kept, once once they saw what she was made of, they kept training her, and then they start promoting her, and that's when she really became deeper known, and she became a women's champion in the forties in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's right. And with her wrestling career, she married Billy Wolf, who would end up... Oh, wait, I take that back. Mildred Burke actually defeated another wrestler of that era named Clara Mortensen that didn't get really as heralded. Mm-hmm. But... She held the belt. Yep. See, and what they did was that Mortensen and Burke had a feud in the, in the mid-30s. Because this was during the Great Depression. Right, right, right. That Mortensen and Burke kept wrestling, but Mortensen was always booked to win until one time at the very beginning of 1937, Mildred Burke actually won in Chattanooga. But that reign wasn't long-lasting. But Mildred Burke became a draw at wrestling shows because she would beat, she would mainly wrestle men, and she only lost once out of over a hundred matches with guys. So that's where Mildred Burke's legacy came from. But she married Billy Wolf, and they had a they had a marriage that lasted a, a while. But Billy Wolf was who Lillian Ellison came to in order to wrestle, but. They never liked each other. And it was to the point where William Ellison, who became the fabulous moolah, her dad had passed because, and she was left without a parent because moolah's mother passed when she was four. So she just lost her only other parent when her dad had passed. And Billy Wolf 
was saying, "Well, you just, well, you just took a break. Yeah, yeah, you just had off time, and just pretty much just berating her for wanting to." It's time to get back to work, trying to make this money. Right. You ain't. It's yeah. a game. You ain't going too far to see that. Right, and because of that one exchange where well, this is he business. didn't want to let her bury her her dad and be in bereavement, she quit him. She quit him, and things just weren't the same. But ah, that's where the legend of the fabulous moolah began, because. That's when they start. Tra- that's when they start training the women wrestlers. And that's bat, bat drops on bat drops on a bed mattress. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what. It, well, that's still an unproven myth. But that's uh-huh. a, that's a very popular myth. But that's still unproven. Now probably just go. That's probably just in, at Moolah's grave. Whether that actually happened or not, because even. People like Judy Martin that had different spats with her. Yeah. Yeah, say otherwise. So, that's still a mystery. Right. As to what's facts and what's cap. Yeah, because I know a lot of people after Moolah died, a lot of people, they went and interviewed a whole lot of, a whole lot of those same wrestlers that she trained. Right. Yeah, and, and some of them didn't have some of the best things to say about our character or whatever, you know. At all. Yeah, yeah I see. And Which like, adds to the infamy of this, this, you know, this infamous picture of Moolah after death. Is there any validity to some of those women's stories that they had to, they had to sell their bodies? Right, to the anything? promoters. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, like it is is some of that dark side of the ring stuff. That episode is, you know. And the main one would actually have been Big Vince McMahon Senior, because that's who, because she really got to be a big draw for Capital Wrestling in the late fifties, early sixties, before it became the WWE. Yeah. So yeah, that's all a mystery. But Moolah's legacy as a wrestler in the ring, even with all her out-of-the-ring controversy, made her such a famous wrestler that her legacy even was strong enough that Stone Cold Steve Austin even named one of his dogs Moolah. Sure did. Sure did. Sure did. But as that also transcends... We also have to give honor to the black pioneers of women's wrestling. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And I got some names to even pull up to add to that story, man. I remember sharing this uh, sharing this story. It's a Vice article. And uh, it's from, yeah, the forgotten story of... Uh, the first black female wrestlers, I'm going to name them all. I'm going to name them, well, the ones who's responsible for the whole wave of anything, who was responsible for the sellout shows, who made promoters happy, who had to hide in the trunks of cars when traveling to the southern states so just so they wouldn't be seen with white promoters in the same vehicle. Um, mm-hmm. 
Elton Johnson, Babs Wingo, Kathleen Wembley, and Marvel Scott. Uh, a couple of these women. The four black horse women. Yeah, the four black horse women. Uh, a couple of these women had a regular program, which you would call a program nowadays. Uh, a regular showdown of matches with each other. Right. And they yeah. would pack, and they would pack, and they would, yeah, that few would pack off, you know, uh, and. And like you said, the, uh, a, mo- a lot of the majority of women's wrestling at the start was uh, during World War II, you know. Right. So that was a true anomaly, you know, clashing with society with, you know, the women has to be at home in the kitchen cleaning the house or whatnot, you know what right, I'm saying? Yeah. They, these women out the here. traditional society that... That a lot of hoteps want back. Yes, I want. <laughs> I want. <laughs> that's a little bit of incel culture. <laughs> Basically, I want to uh, read a bit of script out of this. Um, uh, like many other industries across the country, women's wrestling in the United States experienced a boom during World War II, with many of the men off at war. Opportunities for women on the home home front opened up including in the wrestling ring where Mildred Burke became one of the most popular athletes or performers in any genre at that time. As documented in Jeff Lean's biography, The Queen of the Ring, Burke, along with then-husband Billy Wolf, who you just spoke on, effectively controlled all of women's wrestling, acting as the trainer and booker, respectively, for female talent, providing them to various promoters and territories around the country. Burke was a megastar, an undefeated champion who wore rings and furs and talked openly about her $50,000 annual income, a real figure which became a part of her character as well. As Frank DeFord wrote in 1990, bigger was Burt was bigger, quote, bigger in her sport than anyone ever was in theirs, end quote. Right, see, and that's from all those matches that she had, not just wrestling women, but wrestling men too. Right, yeah. right. She was a, she was a spectacle. Now, I, and I, and I, and I saw, I saw an early pick of Mildred Burke. Yeah, she was bringing some artillery to the gun show. Ha! <laughs> oh, women's wrestling was still riding high in the early 1950s, and women across the country saw Burke and no doubt her income and wanted to follow suit, including the trio of sisters living in Columbus, Ohio. Babs Wingo was the first of the three to start training as a professional wrestler, followed by Ethel Johnson. Johnson reveals in the upcoming documentary Lady Wrestler, directed by Chris Bournier, that the two would take judo and gymnastics classes at the Columbus YMCA on top of their pro wrestling training and strength training. Though record keeping of professional wrestling at that time isn't entirely comprehensive, it's known that Johnson debuted at the age of 16 with Wingo and their friend Kathleen Wembley following short, Man, sometime shortly girls. after around 1951. They were little girls. Yes, yes, yes. They were little girls. Younger sister Marvel Scott's first reported match came in 1954. Could you imagine that? Oh, wow. Yeah. 30, 30 and 40 years later. Even like 50, 60 years later, we just, you know, we just currently finding out I'm this. telling you. The f- yeah, when our first wrestlers, our first women wrestlers, who are the ones we just named, we the first ones they seen on TV was Sherry, Sherry Martell. Uh, right, and the first black one had to have been Jackie. I know for me it was. Me too, and for- then Jazz. And that, and that's the second one. And then Awesome Kong. And then Jay. Awesome Kong, yeah. Um, this was a current, let's see, okay, here, here's the part I was reading. 
The four women were pitted against one another quite often in the main event in the main event of shows across the United States. (laughs) With Johnson usually coming out on top in either singles matches or tag team matches. This was occurring during a time period sandwiched between Jackie Robinson breaking baseball's color barrier a few a few years before and Rosa Parks being arrested in Montgomery a few years later. Early part of the civil rights movement. Early part of the civil rights movement. So you could just imagine seeing this going on in society and keeping in touch with wrestling, pro wrestling too. Race and gender relations had not progressed particularly far at this point, yet a group of black women would have featured attractions on events and breaking attendance records across the country. Which I have to think about, they probably had to keep them up north. You know what? It would be the smart thing for doing, and I think that's what that's what happened. Because I'm right, reading. because now I think about Narvell Austin and Sputnik, Sputnik Monroe on the men's side. Yeah, and how and how much Sputnik had to uh, sacrifice in order to uh, integrate Raskin for Narvell Austin. Yeah, in well, t- yeah, and this was like in the '60s, so yeah. And in Tennessee, at that. I don't think I don't think those I don't think the four young ladies could have been down south. They had to keep them up north. Or across the Midwest, because I'm looking at here. Uh, by 1954, they were drawing 9,000 fans at the Municipal Auditorium Nine, in Kansas City. 9,000 fans back then. That wasn't that wasn't no small feat. Mm-mm. Not back then. Johnson and Wingo received top billing alongside Gorgeous George, one of the most famous wrestlers of all time. Both Johnson and Wingo would challenge Burke for the NWA women's title once, while Scott was rated as high as number three in the world by Ring Magazine in 1968 as compared to then NWA champion Moolah, who was ranked number 14 in the same December issue. See, that's another, that's another telltale story about, about Moolah's cartel that she was running, was that she was getting herself booked for her, for her, for her own legacy, but everywhere else outside started seeing higher talent that wasn't part of the movie cartel uh-huh obviously uh-huh. so if obviously so if she was if she was number three it had to be you know scott steiner the numbers don't lie Wingo and Johnson rated nationally at the top of their category are capable of staging a hard match to beat from an end point of speed and rough action. They can show the men folks some tricks in the trade when it comes to rapid, rugged wrestling fireworks, end quote, wrote one reporter on April 10th of 1955 in the Pampa Daily News. Even on a card featuring Hall of Famer Dory Funk Sr., the focus remained on the ring brilliance of the women. And there's only, there's limited video footage. Yeah, I mean, you really talking about big names with any other phones. Yes, you got Dory Funk Sr. We we talk about these, we talk about these families in professional wrestling. Right. That's one of the ones right there. The Funk family, Dory Funk Sr., Dory Funk Jr., and Terry Funk. Funk. See, See, when people think about Terry Funk, they don't think about the fact that he was a PK too. Promoters kid. Yep. For 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 those of you who don't you know who don't pick up on kayfabe or wrestling lingo or uh, but PK he, but, but is a promoters kid. You understand? Yeah, he's one of. So, where would he rank on the greatest the list of professional kid promoters kids? Mm. 
Hmm. <laughs> You'd have had to put him at number one. Now that I think about it. Yeah, because, yeah. He, he, like, he had to been up there because, like, I usually rank Vince. As the, at the top. Right. Yeah. Because. We, see, that's the, what, see, I ain't mad at you. People think about Shane yeah. being a PK, but Vince was a PK, too. Vince was a PK. And yeah. his children are PKs. Right. <laughs> but Vince is, like, the greatest the greatest ever. I mean, at least from an entertainment standpoint. I mean, in contrast to what this episode and future episodes that we do on professional wrestling is about, like, right. you know, I started off saying that, you know, you have podcasts that have WWE marks pretty much praise everything that Vince does, but right. there's been some times where Vince had a slump. We're going to talk about that slump yeah, we gonna in a future episode. We're going to we talk about whack wrestling events. <laughs> but, yeah, back to the subject, though. Back to the subject. You know, like, like the legacy of the, of the four black horsewomen, as we have coined them. Yes. Leads into really the late 90s because, like, the 80s just was not a good time for black wrestlers altogether. At least not the late 80s. Yes. Like, a lot of what came about was that outside of mainly Mid-South and Memphis wrestling, you didn't really have much black talent. And the black talent that, that they did have really wasn't being pushed positively. Nope, not at all. Like, Butchery, the Junkyard Dog, and Coco Ware all end up going to the WWF in 86 and 87. Yeah. Well, J- well, JYD started in the WWF from around 85. Yeah. He was there for a couple of WrestleManias. And then Butch would show up around 86, around the turn of 86, and then Coco... We end up there around the turn of 87. Yeah. But as talented as what they were and as pushed as what they were in the territories that also includes Florida, too. Yeah. They were just pretty much seen as the black side show of one of Vince, of Vince McMahon's cards. Yeah, in between the, the, uh, the A and B cards. Yeah, they were just pretty much the side shows that weren't really taken seriously. No title they shots. Just, no, just, no such implications. There was already, there was always in some low end angle or storyline. Right. See, and it's like they were just there just to bring black people to the to the shows. Yeah, to make up, you know, put, to put some butts in seats. I mean, yep. Especially in Junkyard Dog's case, he was an attraction. Like uh, like how Dre the G yep. was, he can go and get and get you know he he could put people in seats at any any uh, promotion he went to really. Basically, yeah. yeah see, it was just a bad time. It wasn't. It, it, I'm not singling Vince McMahon out on this. Like Jim Crockett Promotions was another case. Like you had yeah an undersized Rocky King. But, like, by, like, 87, 88, the only real marquee black wrestler that they had, see, they had Pistol Pears Wiley. That was a holdover from Mid-Atlantic. But yeah, he ended up 
going to Continental in 88. And I being, was about to say. And, yeah. and being Willie B. Hurt. Right. Right. Yeah. There's even, I even look back in Pistol Pizzer's history. It's like, he, he was decent. He was, he was a decent wrestler before, yep. before they turned him into a jobber. And then Tiger Conway. And then Tiger Conway. Yeah, I vaguely teams. remember. They were just yeah. A tag team by then. Yeah. And then, yeah. but the only real protege that they had was, yeah, in Jim Crockett Promotions, was Ron Simmons that was actually grandfathered in from the, the UWL Federation. Yes, he he came over with Sting and Rick Steiner and Jr. and Doctor Death Steve Williams. Yeah. Yeah. And they see and Crockett actually had Ron as the black hero rascal that would that would win his jabroni squashes and then tell all all the kids not to use drugs. <laughs> <laughs> he would be your don't do drugs rascal, pretty much. <laughs> Let me add these tidbits more to the uh to the women's yeah. part of it. You yeah, know, uh, like I was just setting this yeah, the stage for if it was that bad for, yeah, for yeah. for for black men, then there was no place really for black women. And women, nice women for the most part, nice but especially not black ones. Nice segue into that too. Uh, with the bulk of their careers occurring while Jim Crow laws were still in effect, the unique nature of the sister's success and prosperity during this era cannot be overstated. Yet it remains a forgotten piece of American history. The women endured the endorsed racism of the time. In Lady Wrestler, Johnson recalled how trips to the southern states sometimes require hiding in the trunk if they were in the car with a white person, and yet they were still huge draws. Like, people knew who they were, but they didn't respect them right, outside, outside of, the of the ring. That's in part due to their portrayal within the industry, which is fascinating considering the era and media landscape. And boxing. Was... Boxing, which shared... Hold that thought. Boxing, which shared the same sports pages and quite often magazine publications was wrestling. The wrestling magazine featured wrestling and boxing and wrestling was a popular rag. Yes. Yes, kids. Once upon a time, professional wrestling was documented with the same fervor and importance as championship boxing. It wasn't just looked at as sports entertainment. It wasn't sports entertainment yet. All right. Um. Quite often, magazine publications with wrestling were still struggling with ugly portrayals of black fighters at the time. But in pro wrestling, where characterization is a part of the performance and one might have expected hideous menstrual show-type portrayals, the black women were simply lauded as extraordinary athletes and as attractive, desirable women. Which, which when you really look at how how blacks and wrestling re- yeah, regressed mm. later yeah decades later yeah that means that the four horse four black horsewomen were held in high esteem yes they were in comparison to generations later when you had yeah your characters that pretty much just stepped and fetched exactly exactly like even though you could respect a wrestler's skill with just the character they portrayed out there and, and what what was right. lit portrayed, what, who they lit in. Right, it kind, yeah. of, it kind of influenced stereotypes. Yes, it did. It really influenced stereotypes. Yes, it did. Check out this other tidbit. Uh, it's sad to say, but had the women attempted to break into the business 
in the WWF 20 years later, in the 70s or 80s, their fates would have been entirely different. Case in point. The organization had no black female wrestlers during the rock and wrestling era, and none on a regular basis until Sapphire debuted in 1989 in a mostly managerial role. Right. See, and Sapphire was just mainly just Dusty Rhodes' valet. See, and outside of WWF, the AWA didn't have anybody black of note. Nope. And then the NWA with Crockett, they had Dark Journey, who was grandfather from Jim Crockett, I mean, from the Universal Wrestling Federation. But after the 1987 Great American Bash Tour, poof, she was gone. She was gone. But she and she actually had, and Dark Journey actually had some great roles in the UWF in in 1986, feuding with Missy Hyde and Hot Stuff International. Yes. Yeah, feuded with Jake the Snake Roberts in 1985, and actually took a DDT. From actually him took on a DDT. I remember that one. I remember that. I actually remember that one. That's like you know, what people think people think that. That time, the Rock and Rollers Express and Jim Cornette slapped uh, no, Baby that was Doll. Midnight. That was Midnight. Yeah. Did I say Rock and Rollers Express? Yeah. My fault. Midnight Express. Yeah, and, and, and took the tennis racket to her stomach. <laughs> that was vile even then. That's that you know. That's what Ted Turner was looking at back then. It's yeah. like, yeah, we can't have this. We can't have this. Uh, a black woman wouldn't win a championship until Jacqueline did it in 1980, 1998. I remember that. Black men, I do too. Black men at the time were portrayed as everything from savages with very hard heads. That makes me think about Jim Yeah. And no communication skills to pimps, slick. Yeah, yeah, past the slick. Past the slick. And to a white guy claiming to be from the deepest, darkest which, Africa. Which was actually the one man gang who was an actual white man. Yes. Yes. Who was an actual that, white that, man. That, that, saying Fox and Mamas. That's that tripped me out. That tripped me out right there. Like the stereotype dog like you ain't black i mean and then and then and then you and then you had let's see your butch your butchery was just you know was just another tough he was a tough guy yeah he was a tough guy he he had bad bad news brown allen coach yes yes jyd of course coco Ware that ended up getting his frankie bird coco beware the bees for bird now we're gonna call no we're gonna call that man coco Ware. Because he had that one title fight against Flair and went 20 minutes with him in the Mid-South Coliseum. And put the figure four on him, too. Right. But WWE ain't ever going to tell you that. Neither nah, nah, nah. WWE will tell you that's that before it. the marks with that, that's, that's, that's a That's a mark alert right there, you know what I'm saying? That's a little Mark tidbit right there. And it's on YouTube for the whole world to see. Uh-huh. Because Vince does no Memphis TV footage. All right, the women, the four horse black women, the four black horsemen was all ahead of their time with what they did right. in the ring. A lot of stuff that the cruiserweights were doing, they was doing that back then. Even though it was maybe at a stunted pace, they did that. And uh, missile drop kicks, that was invented. I know for a fact that was invented by right. uh, like, by Ethel Johnson. It's like if you could take. It's like if, it's, it's like if you could take them and. Translate them into black women in wrestling now. You could pretty much put Sasha Banks, Bianca Belair. Yes, you can. 
I say Jade Cargill is going to become one, you know, because she's developing pretty. She's well. developing. She's it's her. It's her developing. It's her developing. Yeah. They putting the. I don't think they are putting the belt on her too early because I think she's getting. They, they training her. Yeah, I mean, she's still young. She's still she's young. Still, yeah, she's still yeah. Got years. The hand is still heavy. <laughs> right, she, uh, Jay still got years of growing. I wouldn't be surprised, like, in the next few angles that they put her yeah. in, it's going to look like something. I'm not looking for her to be, like, some super technical right. mat wrestler or something like that. But I think she's going to turn out good in, like, a uh, Hulk Hogan way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. On that, on that level. And then you got Naomi out there. Yeah, I have to watch more matches with her just so I can have these yeah. folks, yeah, on my memory like that, you know. Um, and then, you, and then you got Afro Latina like Marty Bell, that's been a veteran. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's wrestled like in a good couple of uh, promotions. You know, I first got to see her in the National Wrestling Alliance wrestling uh, against folks like uh, Allison Kay and Molina. Yeah, which and which, Thunder Rosa. Yeah, which Marty Bell and Allison Kay did retain the NWA World's Women Tag Team Championships as the Hex. That's the Hex. And they just came back from. A European tour and defended the tag titles at the NWA Crockett Cup tonight. Right, right. So that's like that's like that's great. That's great. Just to have um, women's wrestling not exactly at the forefront, but being more than just a sideshow now. You right. Know? See, and we've seen this happen on WWE a few a few years ago where. Right, because the women, the women's matches was main invented at some of these pay per views. Right, I mean, see, it's like this. It's like the attitude era mainly sexualized women a lot, but this era is better because these women are still fine as hell. I ain't even gonna sit there and sugarcoat the shit. I mean, they're training. They're still baddies. They're training. They're training they and are, everything. Their presentation. They respected more for their actual talents in the ring. Yes. And their ability to draw and the, their ability to talk, everything like that, instead of just being sex symbols. Right. Or, or you know, eye candy. I mean, puppies. <laughs> Brian Pitties, Brian Pitties, Brian Pitties. Yeah, yeah. That was like a dark era, like. I mean, we had we had to take into account Jacqueline won the WWF Women's Championship in 1998. They were still doing TNA wrestling right. on, on the WWF. The whole attitude era, it. yeah. I mean, it helped me through puberty. Bras, still. bras, and panties matches. I mean, it, it helped me through puberty. But still. <laughs> As a 35 on the 36 year old man, now that I'm actually seeing the progression, I can love and respect this era because the women. Are, are still very beautiful but you actually get to see them actually wrestle instead of playing titty fight I don't think that's all we could we could have gotten this we could have gotten this back in 1996 1997 or something I mean, like that how really many times had, do you I mean, had to reboot and you still had Medusa out there yeah she did you still had Medusa out there in WCW yeah as a matter of fact you know one of the big shakeups like you know they started when did they start at the women's division up in uh, WWF again? Like, 93, 92, 93, somewhere yeah, between there? Yeah, when she was a Lundra Blaze. Yeah. And they, and they brought back Lani Kai, and then they had you know, Bertha Faye. Yeah, and then she jumps to 
WCW. And throws the women's belt in the trash. Throws the women's belt in the trash. And that was a big that was a big moment out of many big moments that happened in during that time. Like, you know, it was a big thing about uh WWF wrestlers leaving to go to WCW. Right. You know, when the big shakeups, you know, uh, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash leaves, and then, and, and, you know, forming the NWO with H- Hogan. H- Hogan makes, like, the biggest heel turn. Of all time. Of all time right there. Like, he was blindsided. Nobody knew that was happening. Uh, Except for Bobby the Brain Heenan. Whose side is he on? <laughs> Whose side is he on? <laughs> He's the third guy. <laughs> People, we about to end an episode of monumental importance. I like to give a shout out to everybody who tuned in to the uh, first pipe bomb and gave us great feedback on Twitter, on Facebook, everywhere else. Um, if you have some questions for us, shoot them here and everything. The resounding response to it has been nothing short of magnificent, man. And um, I want to thank all y'all even tuning in and you know we we got some we got some fans that love that love actual pro wrestling and grew up on some of the same stuff that we grew up on and the music is cute i feel like tony Schiavone standing next to uh lance russell and everything i'd say david crockett david crockett and um this is this is our time man this is our time uh Play the episode out while you're on the road or going to bed or something. And uh, let us know what other wrestling subjects we should cover in the future. Right. Yeah, the feedback is always welcome. Criticism just, is always welcome, too. Yeah, you can find Curtis Metcalf. You can find yours truly, BJ Here we go. Here we go. We're going to do it. We're going to do it like this. On Twitter, Curtis Metcalf. Well, Curtis underscore Metcalf1 on Twitter. Uh, Ronan underscore Tai Chi on Instagram. Um, you listen to the Fresh of My Fresh on Anchor. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else a podcast is um, can be broadcasted on uh, Beavis. And I am Beavis Philbin on Facebook. I'm Beavis Philbin. I'm at Beavis Philbin 86 on Twitter. And I'm also at Beavis Philbin on Instagram. All right. That's going to do it. What a rush. Over and out. One more thing before we finally put this episode into the uh, stream. Uh, B just got a shout out he needs to do. Oh, yes. And for those of y'all that are unfamiliar with college wrestling, college wrestling is the formal sport that does not have the kicks, the punches, the top rope dives, the missile drop kicks. The leg slaps whenever they do super kicks. None of the flippy crap that we like to watch is professional wrestling, but all the catches catch can holds. And this weekend was great for the culture when it came to NCAA wrestling championships. And I'd like to give a big grande shout out and congratulations to who I'd like to consider the Penn State Nation of Domination, which is Roman Bravo Young, who has retained his national championship. He won last year for his weight class. 
Then you also have Carter Starachi and also Aaron Brooks from Penn State. And then you also have WWE commit Gable Stevenson from the University of Minnesota that's already signed with WWE and won the heavyweight class for the University of Minnesota. And that's another thing that I would really encourage people to watch is formal college wrestling. Like, I honestly wish that Mobile County Public Schools would consider investing into having wrestling as another sport for the athletic department. I wrestled a little bit in junior high. I went to a private school, and I wrestled in 7th and 8th grade, and I had fun. And I honestly think that it would bring a lot more opportunities to kids, both boys and girls, if they grew up learning the formal sport. And believe it or not, the formal sport of wrestling also has been a pipeline to the the professional sport that we watch on TV, even if it is entertainment-based. The college sport led to pro wrestling. Like, for instance, just the University of Minnesota alone, you had Brock Lesnar, Shelton Benjamin, the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. He was there. The University of Michigan had both Rick and Scott Steiner. Breaker. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, both of the Breaker brothers. I mean... Rick. Rick Steiner. Yeah, I mean, and they, I want to say both were NCAA champions as well. You know, from countless, countless episodes of NWA wrestling that we've heard Jim Ross color commentate, he was always give background information on on certain wrestlers, especially if they played pro sports before, you know, yeah. And that wasn't just a JR thing. That goes back to Gordon Soley. Yes, he did. The Dean. The Dean surely did did that. Yep. And then you also had Kurt Angle that won the Olympics gold medal. Three gold medals. With a broken freaking neck. Right, right. I was I witnessed the Olympic trials that um Atlanta nineteen ninety six that he did that in, you know what I'm saying? That's what made me a big fan of him. In the first place, he was a heel at first. I liked him. I liked him as a heel, but then it's like he had one of the smoothest transitions from a heel to a babyface. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like like the like the college sport is so slept on because people only want to watch the entertainment that it honestly angers the college wrestling yeah, well the formal wrestling community when they don't see as much press but entertainment is entertainment but I have a love for just wrestling all together. It doesn't matter if it's the entertainment side it doesn't matter if it's the sports side because I have done the sports side and you find a lot of roots and elements to different wrestling holds coming from the formal sport. There you go. Like your double, like your double leg pickup leads to a spine buster. <laughs> your double leg pickup is your basic tackle that leads to a spine buster. You have fireman's carries, and then you have your half Nelsons, which a full Nelson is illegal in formal wrestling, but a half Nelson 
is a way to lead to a cradle into a into a pinning combination like like the small package that people like to use yeah and, and the schoolboy pins schoolboy those pins. are elements yeah especially those schoolboy pins that you see in the 24/7 Waffle House championship matches yeah but those are all elements that come from the formal sport of wrestling so i really encourage people to want to subscribe and tune in more to the formal sport and especially for the NCAA wrestling t- championships those are pretty lit I think that's a good look but you know you have about as much chance of people really taking that seriously as yeah, that's a- true. A- as people want to take the, the, uh, the WNBA uh, season and the playoffs seriously like at right. one time, at one time, like a couple of years ago, it was, it was probably like I was like one of only like three people that was actually tweeting about the the the, uh, the finals and stuff because I was sitting there watching mm-hmm. the finals. They were showing it on ABC, so I just like, yeah, let me sit there and watch this. And just like you know, you know, you know, that's a whole another story. But um, yes, any any last words? Mm-hmm. I think that you wanted to get all that out, and yeah, I had to. Yeah, I had to. You know. Oh yes, and then also, I also have to let people know that if you are interested in learning what the life of a trucker is like, oh yeah, plug your plug your part. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, I just recently in the last week to week and a half just started my own podcast, and that's the. Welcome to the mind of a maniac, mother trucker, mother Mother trucker, podcast. And what I'm doing is pretty much discussing the life of a trucker from my eyes, but it's not really a pro trucker podcast. So what I plan to do is educate and entertain people that are not in the truck driving life that would have questions about what all we see and just the issues that we face. Like, I just did an episode on Friday night called Truck Stop Culture 101. And what I'm doing is introducing the life of a trucker as it relates to being in a truck stop and just all the trappings that set truckers up for failure. Like, having unhealthy foods that are like 30 to 50 grams of fat and over a gram of sodium yet we get told lose this weight so you won't have to be on a CPAP and have and be and be considered with sleep apnea but we're getting fed all this food is pretty much making that all happen so just consider it like somewhat of an expose in a way from somebody that's in the game and been in the game seven years and kind of tired of what I see in the culture that all these other elder truckers are not doing about because they'd rather circle around the Washington DC beltway crying about vaxes and masks. <laughs> that's all covered on the mind of a maniac mother trucker podcast. Also on Spotify and Anchor and Anchor FM. 
and everywhere else. You know, you know, you put more episodes out. Anchor will get them, get, you know, will distribute your your show out to other podcasts or services, and they'll be on there. Uh, you probably got Pocket Cast. I know. Uh, I know, I know, uh, yeah. Barbie, Barbie LaBruja yeah, has, Bruja, yep. yeah, she has, she has a spiritual but lit podcast and it's on Pocket Cast. I've seen her announce it like the other week and everything, you know, so, you know, you know, right. we making a difference out here, y'all, with, oh, uh, yeah. with, with, with our podcast. I mean, you know, we, we choose to do what we do because we have voices to do so. And my message out there to, uh, out there to somebody who's like, listening and you may feel some type of oppression on your job or anything use your voice use your voice because it's all on you at the end of the day how you react and how you respond to things that you know I know I know for a fact that everybody that has nine to fives out there y'all are probably like the hardest workers out there right now and you're faced with having to do six and seven other people's job if you're not working from home. Right. You know, I don't want to separate just the, the the remote work crowd, but, you know, for the people to have to have to pick up tools and do like what my man BJ is doing and stuff like that. <coughs> Excuse me. You have, to, you have to be out here dealing with society every day, and sometimes you may have to take society open to human resources, so... True. Stand up for what you believe in. Don't don't get run over. Don't get pummeled. Don't get suckered. And uh, we're going to end it on that note. Indeed. Yes. Bless y'all. Uh, give us feedback on the episode. We right here all day. Peace.